We are less than three weeks into Liz Truss's premiership, and we've already seen the biggest set of tax cuts since 1972, and she and Kwasi Kwarteng have crashed the pound. Um, pretty momentous day in politics. I'll be joined later by Aaron Bastani to discuss it all on tonight's show. As I promised on Wednesday, I've also got an interview about Vladimir Putin's latest escalation, let's say, of the war in Ukraine. And we're going to be talking about the Labour Files. That was a documentary on Al Jazeera last night. We do want to know your comments and your questions throughout the show. Do you think that Kwasi Kwarteng has just crashed the UK economy? Or are we going to see relative stability all while the rich get richer and the poor get nothing? I think those are the two options we are looking at. I'll be discussing with Aaron which one we think is, is the most likely outcome. The economic package announced today by Kwasi Kwarteng wasn't called a budget. It wasn't an official budget, but by all accounts, it's more significant than an ordinary one. Kwarteng explained his government would be going for growth. We need a new approach for a new era focused on growth. Our aim over the medium term is to reach a trend rate of growth of 2.5%. And our plan, Mr. Speaker, is to expand the supply side of the economy through tax incentives and reform. Those tax incentives and reforms involve some pretty gigantic giveaways to the wealthy. The cap on bonuses is out, the proposed increase in corporation tax is scrapped, and there are swinging tax cuts. High tax rates damage Britain's competitiveness. They reduce the incentive to work, to invest and to start a business. And the higher the tax, the more ways people seek to avoid them, or work elsewhere, or simply work less, rather than putting their time and effort to more creative and productive ends. Take the additional rate of income tax. At 45%, it is currently higher than the headline top rate in G7 countries like the US and Italy. And it is even higher than social democracies like Norway. But I'm not going to cut the additional rate of tax today, Mr. Speaker. I'm going to abolish it altogether. Yeah. From April the 23rd, we will have a, high, a single higher rate of income tax of 40%. This will simplify the tax system and make Britain more competitive. It will reward enterprise and work. It will incentivize growth. It will benefit the whole economy and the whole country. And Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, after all, after all, this only returns us, this only returns us to the top rate we had for 20 years, including the entire time the opposition was last in power. For one month, for one month. And that's not all. I can announce today that we will cut the basic rate of income tax to 19 pence in April 2023, one year early. That means a tax cut for over 31 million people in just a few months' time. This means that we will have one of the most competitive and pro-growth income tax systems in the world. Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, for too long in this country, we've indulged in a fight over redistribution. Now we need to focus on growth, not just how we tax and spend. For too long we've indulged in a fight about redistribution. Tell that to, well, you can't tell that because they've passed away, but tell that to the tens of thousands of people who died because of austerity, right? Or their families. Tell that to the people who have been struggling for the past 12 years to, to buy food, to heat their homes because benefits were cut. Now, it's important to say, while this was in many ways a giveaway budget, there was one group 
Kuateng is still keen to punish. One of the proudest achievements of our Conservative government is that unemployment is at the lowest level for nearly 50 years. But with more vacancies than unemployed people to fill them, we need to encourage people to join the labour market. We will make work pay by reducing uh, people's benefits if they don't fulfil their job search commitments. We will provide extra support for unemployed over 50s and we'll ask around 120,000 more people on universal credit to take active steps to seek more and better paid work or face having their benefits reduced. So we're back to a world of new benefit sanctions, all alongside huge tax cuts for the rich. And the extent of those cuts can't be overstated. According to the government's own calculations, they will cost the Treasury £45 billion a year. To put that in perspective, the total education budget in the UK is £100 billion. So instead of these tax cuts, we could have increased the budget of every school in Britain by 50%. It's also very clear who these tax cuts will benefit. Abolishing the top rate of tax will affect only those earning £150,000 per year. That's literally the top 1%. And the total package of tax changes overwhelmingly benefits the most wealthy. This is the combined effect of the cuts to income tax and the scrapping of the social care levy. If you're on a 20k annual salary, today's announcement will make you £218 better off per year. If you're on 200k, you'll be over £4,000 richer. According to the Sky's, Sky News' tax calculator, if you're making a million pounds a year, this budget will make you £55,000 richer. Unbelievable. Here is the distributional analysis of the tax changes from the Resolution Foundation. The tax and benefit changes are worth nothing for the poorest 5% of the population. They are worth over £8,000 the richest 5%. Let's see how Labour's Lisa Nandy responded to the announced tax cuts. It was just extraordinary. Political choices like handing £55,000 to millionaires are just impossible to justify at a time when people are struggling to afford the basic essentials, food, energy costs and housing right across the country. But it's also economically incoherent. You don't grow the economy by uncapping bankers' bonuses. You grow the economy by getting money back into people's pockets and getting them spending again. That's why we've been saying for a long time that you need smart strategic investment to get good jobs back into communities and money back into people's pockets. If you're going to cut taxes, cut business rates, help high streets that are struggling at the moment. Don't just hand huge transfers of wealth from people who are doing badly to people who are doing well and from places that are struggling to parts of the country that are already economically far, far ahead. I'm joined now by Aaron Bastani. Aaron, as I say, this is a pretty momentous day in, in British politics. A tax cuts overwhelmingly benefiting the rich. Is, is that a mistake for the Tories? It seems like a gamble to me. Well, I suppose it's important to disaggregate this into three separate questions, which have three separate answers, Michael, because I think people are coming at this from different perspectives. One is, will this win them a general election? I'd like to just insulate that for a second and rather focus on the two other questions, which is, will this generate growth? And is it in the public interest? Because park the political questions, there's a general election two years away, the speculation seems pointless. All the measures we saw today were done with the intention to return the UK to what they view as trend growth of 2.5% a year. We've only had growth since 2007 
above 2.5% for one year. So in other words, the plan here is to return the United Kingdom to its pre-2007-8 growth trajectory, which was before the global financial crisis. And of course, when that happened, you had peak globalization, you had cheap global labor markets, you had cheap energy, you had massive levels of financialization. The city of London was booming. It employed far more people than it does now. And that's not because of tax and spend or the decisions of any British government. It's because banks like the Royal Bank of Scotland and HSBC and Barclays were much bigger than they are now because the financial services industry was much bigger than it is now. It was a massively overinflated sector because, frankly, it was running off fumes. It was giving credit and allocating capital to people who could never repay it. This is why we had the mortgage crisis, which starts in California in 2007-8, which becomes a global recession. Now, the Tory project here is to return to that growth trend without any of the actual sort of macro variables at hand. So I don't think it'll generate growth of 2.5%. Absolutely not. And I think confirming that point of view is something we're sort of not really talking about today, which is actually this isn't, you know, the Institute of Economic Affairs having free reign in the nursery playing with the toys that they've not done for years. Because in fact, what we're seeing with Kwasi Kwarteng is the intensification of policies that have already failed over the last 12 years. In 2012, top rate of tax was, of course, 50%. That was removed by George Osborne. He said exactly what Kwasi Kwarteng is saying today. If we allow people to keep more of their own money, if we can create the incentives for, for wealth creation, for entrepreneurship, create a dynamic economy that will create more growth and more tax revenues. It didn't. He said the exact same thing when they reduced corporation tax down to 19%, the lowest in the G7. It will make us more competitive, more inward investment, global Britain, more growth, more tax receipts. We know what we're doing. It did none of that. And so today we're seeing two of the exact same things already tried by the Cameron Osborne government, reducing tax for the highest earners and uh, reducing corporation tax. Although in this instance, it's not a reduction in corporation tax. It's just not increasing them as had been projected. So the idea that we're trying things which have never been tried before couldn't be nonsensical because we've tried exactly these things in the last 10 years. And then finally, on the point of, you know, we're sick and tired of redistribution. Well, at the same time as getting rid of the top rate of tax, which is 50%, at the same time as reducing corporation tax down to 19%, George Osmond, by the way, went into the 2015 election saying it would go to 15%, he went to even lower. At the same time as all of that, what did they do? They cut benefits and they increased VAT. So they were absolutely not concerned about redistribution and they were absolutely using the same rhetoric that we hear from Kwarteng today in the name of the same economic orthodoxy. The point is, it didn't work. So what I find strange from all of this, Michael, is you have people like Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss saying we've had 12 years of economic stagnation, and yet they're using the exact same policy tools. This is the problem with fanatics. When their ideas don't work, they just double down and say, you know what, guys, we just didn't try and apply them hard enough. I mean, it is worth... I suppose spending a moment breaking down what quasi Kwarteng means when he says these tax cuts will bring about economic growth. Um, whatever they say, this is trickle-down economics. And the idea is that if you let rich people get rich, if you cut their tax levels, then what they will do is, is work harder. They'll innovate more. And then also, if you give them that money in their pockets, they'll go and spend that money. And both parts of that, as you say, Aaron, they've been sort of empirically proven false over the past 12 years. I also don't think they make like theoretical sense. Like, can you really imagine that someone is going to innovate more because they're taxed 
40% instead of 45% on everything they earn over and above £150,000. It just doesn't seem plausible to me. The mechanism doesn't really stack up. If you are someone who wants to earn more, you're not going to say, oh, well, I'm, I'm not going to bother anymore because it's taxed at 45%. Oh, it's only going to be taxed at 40%. Okay, I will now. I will make that incredibly productive invention. That's, that's not how people work. And then the other end, oh, they'll spend the money, it will trickle down to the rest of us. It's basic economics 101. You, you learn it in, in first year university. I think you learn it in, in A-level economics. I did A-level economics. Is that the marginal propensity to consume, how much of each pound you, will, you earn, you will spend, is much higher for poor people than rich people. And that's, again, very theoretically easy to understand. If you don't have much money and you're given a pound, you're going to spend most of that pound. And you're going to spend most of that pound on goods and services, right? If you're very rich and you give that person a pound, one, they're going to save quite a lot of that money. They probably didn't even notice they had that extra pound. You know, these millionaires, they'll barely notice they have this extra 55,000 pounds, which this budget is, is going to give them. And even if they do, they'll save a lot of it. They'll put some of it in shares and they'll spend a lot of it on property. So it, it's not even that the money doesn't trickle down. What the money does is increase our rents and increase house prices so we can never get on the housing ladder because you've got all these rich people who say, what the hell can I do with my money? Oh, I'll park it in London's property market. And that's why no one, that's why there is no houses for the rest of us. It's the complete opposite of trickle down. The richer we make them, not only is that unfair, but it is proactively bad for the rest of us. I have a statistic which I think will annoy a lot of our audience. I think there's going to be a few of those today. George Eaton from the New Statesman. So he tweeted after these announcements A graduate earning £50,000 will pay a higher marginal rate, so 51%, than someone on £150,000. They'll pay 42%. So the student loan, which means that you pay 9% extra marginal on top of your tax, means um, that if you're earning 50k, you'll have a much higher marginal rate than someone on 150k. And a graduate earning 25k will pay a 40% marginal rate, just two points less than top earners. So if you're earning a million pounds, you'll you, you'll pay a 42% marginal rate, presumably because there's something else coming in there um, other than just the income tax. And for a graduate, you will pay 40%, right? Aaron, what do you make of sort of the absence of students in this discussion? Because, I mean, the argument the Tories are making is that high marginal tax rates, I mean, we don't have particularly high marginal tax rates anyway, unless you have a student loan you're repaying. The argument they're making is you're going to be less productive, you're going to work less hard, you're going to innovate less, the economy is going to be less productive because people are disincentivized by this marginal rate. What we have done as a country is we have systematically given everyone who is young everyone who went to university after tuition fees were introduced, we've given them an incredibly high marginal rate. And older people, especially retired people, I don't want to start a, an age war here. This is sort of an economic point. The older you get, the more wealth you have, the, the lower your tax rates. And you'd have thought from a purely economic perspective, you'd want it to be the other way around, right? You'd want to tax younger people less who are more likely to be sort of doing career advancement, maybe starting new businesses, innovating. And instead, what we're doing is we're taxing young people more than old people. Seems Seems a bit off to me. When you talk about people um, saving for old age for their pensions, the real sweet spot really is between, say, 45 and 65. You know, you've bought the house, you've paid for kids, and you are effectively at the higher end of your earning potential. You're spending less. You're not, you're, your propensity to consume is, is falling. So you're saving so much for your pension. What we're seeing now, Michael, I think, and it's, it's, really, it's really now people going into their early 40s, sort of geriatric millennials. They have student debt, often not on the housing ladder, can't afford to have children, and they're completely absent in the political conversation. And, and for the right-wing Tory imaginary, and of course, it's not just people in their early 40s, it's, it's, it's them and everyone below. 
but their quality of life is substantially different to how it's being represented in the national debate. And, and, and as a voting kind of cohort, they don't exist. They do not exist. They're not mentioned by the columnists or the pundits or the TV shows. They don't exist. They, they're viewed as 5% of the country rather than being the backbone of, of the working age population. Like I say, they have student debt. They can't afford to have kids. And like you say, they're paying a marginal rate higher than somebody who could be on astronomical money right now. Important to say, Michael, the people earning the very highest money already basically pay themselves through dividends and pay capital gains tax on earnings, not income tax. The very, very wealthiest people, the millionaires and the billionaires. Another thing on top of that, Michael, I think is really important to say is you saw all of these big breaks for high earners, and yet you see something like child benefit frozen. So, of course, we've got higher inflation. People's wages, hopefully, are going to go up and, and, and try and keep up with inflation. That's, that's something to want. We should, unless you're the Bank of England, it's something to aspire to. But of course, if you keep child tax benefit, uh, the threshold where it is, and people's earnings go up, it makes their life more and more difficult. Important to say, you know, child benefit is not particularly generous. You're looking at about, you know, 90 pounds a month. But it's strange to hear conservatives say, why is the birth rate so low? Why aren't people having more children? When, like you say, why aren't people saving for their old age? Why aren't people getting on the housing ladder? When there are only disincentives against those things, while they're incentivizing, like you say, things that are actually fundamentally quite destructive for the wider economy. Buy to let landlords building up their property portfolios. So it's an interesting one. I'll finish with this, Michael. I saw a great tweet earlier on today. And the guy said, you know what? I'm on 30 grand a year, but now that they've got rid of the top rate of tax, I, I fancy earning 160 grand a year. That's completely you know, recalibrated my, uh, my motives in life, my motivations in life. So yeah, it's a very, very strange world they seem to inhabit. I have to say, I thought Quasi Quarting was slightly more intelligent, but perhaps not. It's a fatal mistake to overestimate a Tory, Michael. We're going to talk about the way the markets have responded. And, you know, we don't like to treat the markets like they are some sort of god that controls what you can and can't do. But the risks taken this early on in a new Tory government seem, yeah, surprising. So the budget, as we've said, looks like a bung to the rich. Perhaps more significant, though, is that we now have a government that doesn't care about budget deficits and it doesn't care about them at all. This chart shows the difference between the budget deficits forecast after the March budget, so with Sunak as Chancellor, and the budget deficits forecast after today's. With Sunak as Chancellor, deficits this year were set to be at £99 billion, or 4% of GDP. After today's announcement, that goes to £190 billion, or 7.5% of GDP. This year, that increase is largely due to the energy price freeze represented in yellow. But the tax cuts announced today mean that even in 2026, when the energy prices are predicted to be back to normal, the UK will be running at a £114 billion deficit worth 4% of GDP. The IFS predict that this will mean government debt will rise to 94% of GDP by 2026. The OBR in March have predicted it would be falling by now. The IFS director isn't happy, so he said this. Today, the Chancellor announced the biggest package of tax cuts in 50 years without even a semblance of an effort to make the public finance numbers add up. Instead, the plan seems to be to borrow large sums at increasingly expensive rates, put government debt on an unsustainable rising path and hope that we get better growth. This marks such a dramatic change in the direction of economic policymaking that some of the longer-serving cabinet ministers might be worried about getting whiplash. Obviously, Liz Truss is one of those longer-serving cabinet ministers. 
Mr. Kuateng has shown himself willing to gamble with fiscal sustainability in order to push through these huge tax cuts. He is willing to shrug off the risks of inflation and to invite significantly higher interest rates. And he has avoided scrutiny by presenting a budget in all but name without accompanying forecasts from the Office for Budget Responsibility. And to avoid that forecast from the OBR is why he didn't call this a budget, even though it has most of the features of one. The markets are also spooked. This chart shows the 20-day change in five-year fixed-rate yield since 1993. So that basically means how much more expensive is it to borrow on international markets than it was 20 days ago. Now, after Kuateng's announcement, the cost went up by 1%. That's a bigger shock, a bigger increase than 9-11, COVID, or the 2008 banking crisis. The value of the pound has also tumbled. Before Kuateng's announcement, the pound was worth $1.12. It's now down to $1.09. That's its lowest level since 1985. And the strength of the pound won't be helped by comments like this. Larry Summers is the former top economic advisor to both Presidents Clinton and Obama. It makes me very sorry to say, but uh, I think the UK is behaving a bit like an emerging market turning itself into uh, a submerging uh, market. There's nothing in the pattern of market response in the UK that suggests anything but fear rather than confidence in the policy approaches uh, being taken. It would not surprise me if the pound eventually gets below a dollar if the current policy path uh, is maintained. So apparently the pound has, has fallen a little bit further since that last one. It's nearly at $1.08. Um, Larry Summers there predicting it would go below $1. Um, this is how Kuateng responded to those movements in the markets. I don't comment on, on market movements. What is good for the economy? Well, you've caused it. What, what, no, what is good for the uh, economy is creating an environment where people can come and invest in the UK, and that's exactly what uh, This is a, just very funny. This is a gamble, though, isn't it, Chan? So you it's have to admit, gamble. how is it not it's a gamble? gamble. Aaron, I want your take on this. I, I don't think either of us think we should let international investors and uh, the godlike notion of the markets determine the limits of fiscal policy. I'm sure if this was a Jeremy Corbyn budget and the pound had fallen by a couple of percent, we would say this is absolutely worth it. What do you think about it in this situation, though? How worried should Truss and Kuateng be about this? It seems like a, a, a big risk and the gain is, 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 is fairly marginal. Well, it's one of those where, Michael, you're absolutely right. You know, you see on Twitter all day people screenshotting the pound versus the dollar. And you think, look, these, we're talking about year-long trends, decade-long trends, what it is at, you know, 10 past four on a Friday afternoon. Just relax a little bit. At the same time, like you say, it's the lowest it's been since 1985. Going back to what I said previously, Michael, about we need to disaggregate the political questions from the economic ones. Well, 1985, it's two years before Margaret Thatcher wins a stonking third majorities. The idea that that necessarily betokens political, political fallout is, is inaccurate. I, I think it may do, but I think, oh, well, look, the pound is weak against the dollar. Therefore, two years ago, the pound also got very low to the dollar. I think it was 1.12, something like that. It may fall further still. Like you say, if it falls below dollar parity, that's a really big, big psychological moment. Really big. Uh, personally, I think that would have long-term political implications. But where we are right now on Friday evening, I think that can be somewhat overstated. In answer to the question about Jeremy Corbyn, we would have had a very similar response had Labour come in in 2019 and 
actively implemented their program, which, by the way, I think much of the British, British establishment, including MPs on their own benches, would have basically thwarted alongside the British media. But let's say they didn't. Let's say they had the strategic focus that you're seeing right now from Kwarteng and Liz Truss. And whatever else you think about them, they are doing this. They are not rocking. They're not swaying. They're not nervous. They have a plan. They're going to execute it. It might fail, but they're going to execute it. Let's say Labour did that. You'd be looking at a couple of hundred billion pounds in terms of spending. You'd be looking at, potentially, there was talk of monetary uh, monetary intervention, a form of QE where you'd bury student debt, potentially. Huge, huge, huge things would have been in the ether and in the conversation and freaking out the markets. We would have seen something similar, for sure. Okay, but what would, what would we have got for that? We would have had a rapidly decarbonizing economy. We would have had massively impressive high-speed transit between systems. We would have had a reinvigorated housing market. We would have had rising real pay. We would have been putting people to work. We would have been educating people. So the fundamentals of the economy, infrastructure, people, skills, would have been leveraged far more effectively for broadly the same overhead. What are we getting now? Some tax cuts. That's literally it. And Michael, for the average person watching this, what are the tax cuts? Well, at the end of the month, okay, your national insurance contributions will be a bit lower. But the other stuff, in terms of income tax, you're not going to see that till next April, right? And even then, it's, it's relatively paltry. If you're on about £30,000 a year, you'll be £400 better off. Okay. By the way, take out inflation, take out interest rate rises, you're still poorer. So all of that sort of market freak out, yes, it would have happened under Corbyn. And I think, yes, of course, as socialists, we need to say, of course, it would have been acceptable. And they should have held st steadfast. But the prize would have been much greater. And I do think it is a measure of how big this crisis is, that even if the worst case scenario doesn't come to pass, Michael, it is absolutely extraordinary. You're getting this kind of response from the markets around British gilts, the, you know, and the value of British sovereign debt that's sold on the market because of actually just funding tax cuts. I think that does tell you there's something deeply wrong here with what we're, with what we're doing. And it is, again, finally important to say, the Tories don't like big government. Well, they inherited a debt to GDP ratio, which is the national debt as a size relative to, to the size of the national economy, the 60% in, in 2010. It's now 100%. It's going to be more than that. And in the meantime, they've overseen two of the biggest state interventions in British history in the form of COVID. And now, of course, with the, uh, the suspension of energy price increases, which is going to cost over the next six months, I think, about 60 billion. That could cost more than 100 billion as a package over a year. So yes, it's, it's hypocrisy from all sides. If this was happening under a socialist, I think there probably would have been a coup about half past five, Michael, before, if this was a Labour government and you saw the pound uh, perform like that, the show would probably be uh, shut down and we'd probably see images of, uh, you know, the police going into 10 Downing Street to arrest Jeremy Corbyn. But it's the Conservatives, business as usual. Not good, but there we are. It's easy mode for the Tories when it comes to this stuff. I'm glad you brought up what do you see from it? Because I think that, you know, if you're on 30K, we're all on around 30K at Navarra Media, flat pay structure. If you think about it, £400 a year will be better off because of these tax changes. Now, how much did my rent increase per month for one bedroom in a three bedroom ex council flat? £100. So you've got my rent this year has increased by £100 per month for one bedroom. And I, I save £400 a year in tax. Right, that is that's not a good deal. I'm not into that. 
And you have to think, yeah, if you're going to do, I'm, I'm into deficit spending. I don't mind if you spook the markets a little bit, if it's worth it. If they'd printed 45 billion pounds and spent it on building social housing in Britain's overcrowded cities, overcrowded in the sense that there aren't enough houses to live in, not that there isn't enough space. There is enough space, there aren't enough houses, there aren't enough affordable houses in any case. If we'd spent 45 billion pounds on that, I might actually see the result of that at the end of the month and at the end of the year. 400 pound a year, when my rent's gone up 100 pound a month, who cares? You know, this is this is this is not worth risking a financial crisis for because this is this is essentially worthless to me. Well, relatively worthless. We're going to move on to a completely different story, just as important. In response to defeats on the battlefield in Ukraine's Kharkiv region, this week Vladimir Putin has chosen escalation that included a partial mobilization of troops to defend our motherland. <laughs> its sovereignty and territorial integrity for the security of our people and on the liberated territories, it is necessary to support the proposal of the Defence Ministry and Chief of General Staff to announce a partial mobilisation of military reservists. Partial mobilization means that military reservists will be called upon to fight in Ukraine. Up to now, Putin had relied on people volunteering to go to the front line to bolster Russia's armed forces. Obviously, they get paid, but they're volunteering to do it. They're not conscripted. The mobilization is partial because Putin says only those with specialist military experience will be conscripted to fight. There are some doubts about that, though. Putin's speech also included explicit threats to the West. Our country, too, has different weapons of destruction. In some cases, they are more modern than those of NATO. If the territorial integrity of our country is threatened, then to defend Russia and our people, we shall, of course, use all means at our disposal. I am not bluffing. That threat to use any means to defend Russia's territorial integrity is made complicated by the fact Putin seems set to dramatically expand what he claims to be the borders of Russia. Sham referendums to join Russia are currently being held in four regions of occupied Ukraine. Kherson, Zaporizhia, Donetsk and Luhansk could all be about to join Crimea as territories annexed to Russia. Like Crimea, that transfer won't be recognised internationally but we are left to guess what it might mean for Putin's nuclear doctrine. Meanwhile, within Russia proper, Putin's partial mobilisation has led to protests. According to the New York Times, more than 1,300 people from 38 cities have been arrested. Alongside public protests, another increasing form of dissent is to leave Russia. The Guardian report this. Direct flights from Moscow to Istanbul, Yerevan, Tashkent and Baku, the capitals of countries allowing Russians visa-free entry, were sold out for the next week, while the cheapest one-way flight from Moscow to Dubai cost about £5,000, a fee too steep for most. Many were forced to get creative and drive to some of the few land borders still open to Russians. Border guards in Finland, the last EU country that still allows entry to Russians with tourist visas, so that they have noticed an exceptional number of Russian nationals seeking to cross the border overnight, while eyewitnesses also said the Russian-Georgian and Russian-Mongolian borders were collapsing with overwhelming traffic. To discuss the implications of Putin's escalation, I spoke earlier to Ilya Matviev. He's a political scientist who was formerly based in St. Petersburg. It's clear that uh, the mobilization, which is probably the most important of uh, the events of the previous days, it's completely unprecedented. 
it means stepping in uncharted territory. And uh, a mobilization like that uh, happened last time in Russia in uh, 1941, when uh, Russia uh, entered uh, what Russia calls Great Patriotic War. So you can imagine the significance of this event. And uh, I think that in many ways it breaks the previous kind of nature of relationship between the Kremlin and the mass of the people, because the Kremlin tried to prevent the war from spilling into everyday lives of most of the population of Russia. But now uh, they don't have this choice. Uh, they feel that they're cornered and uh, they feel that they're forced to make this decision to, to mobilize the people, but then uh, the population will not take it kindly. It's clear that uh, it's a completely new thing and it means basically being summoned to go and kill and die for an unclear reason, you know? So even in this uh, address uh, calling for mobilization, Putin mentioned the liberation of uh, the Donbass. But what about the other goals of the so-called special operation that were uh, constantly mentioned six months ago, ago like uh, denazification and uh, demilitarization of Ukraine? So what about those things? Are they forgotten? Are they still goals of the war? Or are we now focused only on uh, liberating Donbass? So it's even unclear what the war is for. And then they call uh, hundreds of thousands of people to go to war. So it changes things in uh, medium term and long term. It completely changes the situation for the Kremlin. And who precisely is at risk of being called up now? Because I, as I understand it, a full mobilization would be that you know any fighting age man could be conscripted into the army. This is much more limited and specific than that, isn't it? Could you, could you talk about who's, a, who's at risk of being called up? Everybody. It's not limited and specific. There's no such thing as partial mobilization in Russia, in fact. This should be treated as a full mobilization, potentially without any limit in terms of the number of uh, soldiers that they want to recruit. Uh, everyone is at risk. Uh, everything they said in terms of we only mobilize uh, people with previous experience in the military, blah, blah, blah. It's all just a lie because already uh, a few days passed and we see how, how this is going. And this is going in a direction where they just target every man. It's very simple. So age doesn't matter. Previous military experience doesn't matter. Nothing matters for them. If they can get you, they will get you. And then we see that uh, there is a, a kind of racial bias in, in the way mobilization is conducted. In places like uh, Buryatia and uh, Tatarstan, it's just a complete... Uh, completely lawless uh, process without any limits, where they even shut down several schools in order to create those temporary conscription, you know, points in the schools themselves. And then they just grab everyone they can get. In other regions, it's uh, smaller in scale, but the logic is the same. There is no, there is no real logic. You know, everyone can get conscripted. And uh, th this, uh, these platitudes that Putin is giving, they, they, they're just a sham. I mean, all, this, all these things that only people with previous military experience will be conscripted, that uh, only certain military uh, skills are needed, it's just not true. They, they need uh, everyone they can get their hands on. I suppose that 
gives important context to the resistance that is being put up against this this mobilization and that takes the form as far as i understand protests in the street but then also people trying to escape um russia could, could you talk about that both people trying to get out and people protesting this announcement i can easily understand uh, people who want to get out because uh, their life is at stake and uh, the problem is uh, traveling from russia is already restricted by lack of air travel to most of countries, you know, by uh, lack of uh, connections to the outside world because of sanctions, not just uh, because of uh, the Kremlin limiting the ability of Russians to travel. So it's difficult to get out of the country. There are a few countries where you can go by plane and all the air tickets were, you know, sold out several weeks uh, in advance, like immediately several weeks worth of uh, air travel was sold out in a couple of hours. And then uh, plane tickets went up to $5,000, $7,000 for an economy flight to Istanbul, to, to Yerevan, to places like that. And so people now mostly try to go to cross the border uh, in their cars in, uh, in Georgia in uh, Kazakhstan, and there are long queues at the border, and uh, it's you know it, it looks like a migration crisis in the making because uh, uh, Georgia, uh, Armenia, and Kazakhstan they are not big countries, and uh, it will be very difficult for these countries to absorb all these people. So it's a very dramatic situation, and uh, the important thing to understand is that. Uh, the biggest protest wave of the last, you know, several years happened in 2021 when Alexei Navalny uh, went back uh, to Russia and was immediately imprisoned. And then the protest movement and Navalny's movement specifically placed their bets on uh, uh, mass protests on the street. But then it became clear that uh, hundreds of thousands of people are willing to go on the streets but the police is still able to overpower them. And at some point, uh, Navalny's movement had to call off the street rallies because they didn't work, because the police was just, you know, dispersing everyone, sending people to prison, beating them up, torturing them, and so on. So it looked like a failed strategy. But uh, what other strategy do people in Russia have if they want to protest what's going on? So despite the fact that this strategy failed, at some point, when the war started in February, Navalny's movement once again called for a series of street rallies, and people did try to mobilize. It was quite significant. It was uh, tens of thousands of people all across Russia. And again, they were all beaten up, dispersed, uh, imprisoned, uh, detained, arrested, and so on. So, And again, it became clear that um, there is... Uh, Really, uh, this mobilization is not getting bigger. It's not getting bigger than a few hundred thousand people all across Russia. But uh, again, people had no choice but to protest this escalation, the mobilization and the nuclear threats. And again, they went to the streets, understanding perfectly well that uh, probably it's not going to work. But they still went. And uh, I think it's uh, rather heroic, actually, that uh, people in Moscow and Petersburg and other places uh, actually went to the streets. And uh, already, you know, there is a lot of evidence that they were severely beaten. A lot of them were detained. A lot of them were arrested. And uh, police treated them as uh, traitors, essentially, as internal enemies. 
Could you talk about Putin's nuclear threats and how seriously we should take them? I think that the world should take these threats very seriously because, uh, first of all, Russia is capable of uh, launching a nuclear attack. This will be the end of Russia, but also this might be the end of the world, you know. So that's the first thing. And second thing, uh, when Putin says that he doesn't bluff, it's true because he was not bluffing when he was amassing troops on the border. And then some people said that, you know, he's not going to intervene in Ukraine. He's not going to launch this war. It's just a bluff. And then Putin demonstrated that it's not a bluff. So it's not his style to bluff, which is, of course, a tragedy <laughs> for, for the whole world. But uh, I think that this needs to be taken very seriously. In that sense, uh, this is perhaps the scariest bit of news that came you know, in, in, in the recent days, uh, because uh, mobilization will probably not work in terms of changing the tide for Russia, because uh, Ukraine now has overwhelming advantage in manpower, in uh, intelligence support from NATO, in modern weapons. And uh, mobilization might not help at all. And at this point, you know, in a few months, when it becomes clear that Russia is unable not just to keep uh, advancing, but it's also unable to uh, defend the territories that it now occupies, then what Putin is going to decide? I don't know. Unfortunately, it's very scary. And from your perspective, I mean, what does taking Putin's nuclear threat seriously mean? Does, does that mean sort of trying to find an off-ramp or trying to find an outcome which he can sell as a success to the Russian people so he's not pushed to the desperate move of news using nuclear weapons? Or or is there another response we can have? What's your, what's your assessment there? I'm not uh, a military expert. I think that uh, there are the whole sort of institutes and centers in, uh, in, in America and in other countries thinking about how to respond precisely to, to this threat. But uh, I don't have a solution here. All I know is that uh, caving to Putin is uh, a bad idea. And uh, uh, looking for a ceasefire at this moment is probably a bad idea. That was Ilya Matviv speaking to me earlier today. And I think, what conclusion can you come to other than that this is very, very stark? He's saying you shouldn't really trust Putin if you make a deal with him. At the same time, Putin is being very serious about the potential use of nuclear weapons. So where do we go from that? And pretty, pretty terrifying. Final story. Absana Begum is a left-wing MP who is currently subject to a reselection process in her Tower Hamlets constituency. Absana believes the challenge to her position as an MP has been partly orchestrated by her ex-husband, a former Labour councillor, who she says subjected her to a campaign of abuse. Absana's official advocate has described the selection process as an extension of that abuse. And this process is not the first battle that Psana has had to fight as a Labour MP. After she became an MP, she was taken to court by the then Labour-run Tower Hamlets Council for alleged housing fraud. The case was based on a complaint by her ex-husband's brother-in-law. Psana was cleared of all charges. The whole situation is disgraceful. It's even more disgraceful because Keir Starmer has done nothing about it. This week, Psana gave Navara an interview about her experiences. Here she's talking about being taken to court. I'm grateful for my office team, my campaign team, local, many local members, um, many members of the local community, you know, refuge, women's aid, uh, Samaritans, you know, like things were so bad for me mm. that you do consider, you know, 
the prospect of being thrown into prison and just you, your whole life kind of stops. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were real moments, definitely, of yeah, like you know, you you contact the Samaritans because you you might not want to live anymore. Gosh. Um, and I saw that happening to me, and I I I think what that case brought up for me was just the sheer, you know, it was the sheer venom and the sheer viciousness in the way in which it was pursued. And the fact that, you know, we are talking about these, this case, which was riddled, riddled with assumptions and biases about ethnic minority communities, about women, about domestic abuse survivors. But the heart of it was, again, it was my ex-husband. Mm. And in the end, you know, the the you were cleared of all charges. They were found to be kind of unfounded. How did you feel when you got that verdict? I had a sense of, of course, a sense of relief, and I felt a relief for for local people. But I do despair sometimes about, you know, the the way in which you know people are treated, and who knows who else is going through a process like this in the local council. I might have had, you know, a pr- pr- privilege in in maybe by the time of becoming an MP, uh, the social capital, and and people I could say, you know, what's happening? Can you help me? Mm-hmm. But local people might not necessarily have that 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 network. Yeah. Or, or that ability to to be able to say like you know this this is what's happening and it's wrong and and how how is the council sort of got these vested powers where they can try and prosecute you and then throw you into prison for you know like jail sentences of like ten years, mm-hmm. um, but I think it does for me you know I think a lot of constituents have said to me you know that the Labour Party has got questions to answer on this how yeah. did a Labour run council do this what was the national leadership doing and saying throughout this entire period. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you see any echoes between what happened to you and, you know, the trial of Lutfa Rahman all those years ago um, and the kind of underlying, as you say, prejudices and Islamophobia that might motivate um, some of that, you know, legal action? I think it's what's very clear is that what has happened to me up to now has happened to me because I'm a socialist Muslim woman, Bangladeshi woman, um, I think minority member of the party who has become the MP. Um, that is why this has happened to me. Mm-hmm. I don't see any other reason why it's, it's 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 happened to me. I don't see any other reason why I'm being treated so awfully uh, by the Labour Party the hierarchy, the leadership, um, and how you know I can be treated in this way. But there can be more sympathy and more care. Um, and more attention given to the well-being of 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 other MPs, not from the other Labour Party MPs that are not from the same background as me. Mm-hmm. I don't know how anybody could look at this situation and say that it is what is happening to me is happening for any other reason other than factional desire mm-hmm. and factional desire outweighing, you know, the the common decency, the basic decency, basic human rights of of somebody from my background. Absana's story is is a complex one. But you would have thought it would have the potential to be explosive. A sitting Labour MP is taken to court by a Labour council. Her allegedly abusive ex-husband is implicated in the case. She's then subject to a reselection campaign, which an independent domestic abuse advocate considers an extension of her abuse. You know, other than Navarra Media, this case has been met with radio silence. There are no investigations by the BBC, no analysis in The Guardian, no phone-ins on LBC. Now, you might respond to this by saying, well, this is a complex story, difficult to understand. It's about internal Labour Party politics. Why would the mainstream media care? Well, 
As a new Al Jazeera documentary shows, they did care when allegations were made which were way, 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 way flimsier than the claims made by Absana Begum. The documentary, in part, recounts a controversy that struck Angela Eagle's constituency of Wallasey in 2016, after they held a meeting after the so-called chicken coup. Our MP, Angela Eagle, had been very supportive of, of uh, Jeremy in the meetings where she would come along to constituency meetings and give a report about what had been going on. According to Runswick, the meeting ends without incident. A week later, a prominent opponent to Corbyn claims that Eagle, who is openly lesbian, is the victim of abuse. I got a phone call saying that there was a television programme where Tessa Jowell was saying that Angela had been subject to homophobic uh, abuse at the meeting. I mean, I talked to um, Angela about her meeting. She faced homophobic abuse at that meeting. Angela wasn't at the meeting, but the inference was that she was. She wasn't. Activists and members of parliament and their staff are facing uh, day in, day out, harassment and in some cases, intimidation. I rang other people that were at the meeting. It was just a complete shock. We didn't know anything about it. No one heard this, you know. The sort of people we are, you don't use language like that. There was no homophobia or intimidation at the meeting. It's a very small room, so it would be very easy to hear what was being said by other people. The national media sees on the story. was articles and television interviews saying that there'd been people shouting that Angela was a dyke, that um, there was homophobic gestures made and repeated homophobic comments. Then over the days and weeks to follow, the allegations grew into, first of all, it was widespread homophobia. What happened in Wallasey is to become the playbook of Corbyn's opponents in the party. Aaron, I want to know your, your thoughts on this, this contrast. You know, the Absana Begum story, you know, it's been reported on well by our, our colleague Rivka Brown. I really recommend you you read her her long read and also watch that interview in, in full if you're you're watching this an hour-long um interview. Really, really interesting, really important. What's going on here is very, very concrete and very, very outrageous. You've got a sitting Labour MP who's taken to court by a Labour Council, the case collapses, and her ex-partner, who an independent advocate you know, suggest was abusive, was implicated. She's now part of a reselection process which her independent advocate says is an extension of that abuse. This is a sitting MP. Now, this to me should be a national news story. Obviously, the Labour Party is implicated in the extension of a sitting MP's domestic abuse. How is that not a big story? But no one's reported on it. And as I said in my introduction to that video, they are very happy to report on internal Labour Party issues. If apparently an MP who wasn't even at the meeting is subject to homophobic abuse. Now, I don't know if she was or she wasn't. I wasn't there. But it seems like the evidence on which all of those stories in all of those newspapers and all of those TV shows was incredibly, incredibly flimsy, right? And we've got here a case where the evidence is not flimsy and the allegations are way, way more outrageous. So what's going on here? I mean, I know we know what's going on here, but it's just it's so frustrating to, to witness. Well, it's very frustrating. And Michael, I think I can, I can sum it up quite simply, really. The Labour leak story would not have been broken by legacy media. 
Novara Media got access to that document. We broke that story. It was sufficiently important that the Labour Party then had to publish the Ford report several years later. There's a massive report looking into the party. People at the time saying, this is ridiculous, it's irrelevant, there's nothing important there, nothing interesting. Well, the Labour Party's response suggests otherwise. Legacy media, the BBC, the Guardian, the Times, whoever, they wouldn't have touched it because it just wasn't in their interests. And because fundamentally, the people being attacked, being besmirched, denigrated, libeled, were on the left. And they're fair game. We say that all the time, and I know it gets boring, but it's important to hammer that home. Uh, on this story in particular, I do agree with you, particularly the angle of domestic abuse and domestic violence, Michael. I am shocked, nonetheless, despite everything I've just said, in regards to the media's treatment of Apsana Begum. It is incredible. It is absolutely incredible. Um, and like you say, you compare it to some of the non nonsense stories that really infused uh, political journalism in this country for years. There's a number of them talked about in the Al Jazeera show last night. There's another two shows coming out. On Saturday, there's one, from what I understand, it really is a hammer to the heart of the credibility of John Ware and BBC Panorama. We'll wait and see. And then another one on Monday. So, yeah, the counterpoint is important, Michael. I do agree with you. But even notwithstanding the points I said about, well, they view the left as kind of fair game, it does really worry me, actually, that a Muslim woman MP, the first hijabi MP, could be treated in such a way and it doesn't matter for the British media or political establishment. I didn't think that. And I'm a cynic about these people, Michael. I think they're deeply unprincipled, unethical people. And I still thought their response to this would be better. I'd said to everybody watching this right now, please watch the Al Jazeera documentary from last night. It is just absolutely extraordinary and really betokens the moral decay, the mendacity, the lies and the deceit at the heart of British politics, the norm. It's not a couple of bad eggs or a couple of bad apples. It is absolutely the norm across the media and across party politics. Now, why is that? My theory is, Michael, you have two party politics, first past the post, very rigid hierarchical party organizations. They don't want popular pressures. They don't want mass public participation within them. Of course, the Tories haven't really had that. They had a little bit of it with Brexit, but nothing really like Corbyn. And so the minute you have popular participation, people joining, getting involved in the party's apparatus, particularly young people, that was what they've always been saying for years. We want more of that. It was almost like an allergic reaction, Michael. You know, they came out in hives. Well, what the establishment did is, well, they started li lying and, and denigrating and besmirching really good people. And that's what I think angers me the most about the Al Jazeera documentary. It's either just ordinary working class people who want to improve their communities, participate in the democratic process of this country, and they were lied about by professional politicians 24-7 for four years. It is sickening. Angela Eagle, by the way, Michael, let's say it properly, Dame Angela Eagle, she should be stripped of that. There's another gentleman mentioned in that documentary. He's a sitting councillor. He, he, he clearly, as far as I can tell, fabricate, fabricated a note because there's a note about how momentum can uh, fix meetings and, and scupper meetings for their own rational self-interests. Tom Watson says that note is straight out of the uh, militant tendency playbook. Well, Actually, yes, it was, because the note was a direct copy of a book review about the militant tendency, which would suggest it's not real. It's a forgery. And yet, despite that, that note became national news covered by the FT, the Guardian, the BBC, broadcast journalists all over Jeremy Corbyn. Will you condemn this note, which, by the way, wasn't even real? 
So yeah, the least serious people in this country all work in SW1, in media and politics. And my God, Michael, are they up their own ass? The lack of interest I just find shocking. As I say, what you know, I'm, I'm not expecting them to say, oh, you know, Keir Starmer's. I, I don't care what their judgment is about Keir Starmer. Just the fact that they don't, they're not interested in what is clearly a huge story, and the only explanation for why they're not interested is, is because it doesn't suit their factional purposes. You know, they say, "Oh, we're independent journalists. We're not factional. Then why aren't you reporting on this?" Let's wrap up there because it's getting late, and we have a big weekend ahead. I'll explain that in a moment. Aaron, first of all, thank you so much for joining me this evening. My pleasure. There's someone in the comments saying, "I need to apologise. We broke the story, you nitwits. There wouldn't have been a Ford report without Navarra Media." There wouldn't have been a Ford report without Navarra Media, so fund independent media and don't start saying, blame, blame us for what? Where else are you going to go for your, for your fair coverage about the Labour Party, the BBC? I'm not going to intervene in this argument between you and this person in the comments. What I am going to say um, is we've got more broadcast for you over the next few days because this weekend, Navarra Media are heading to the world transformed in Liverpool. If you are going, make sure to make it to both our events on Saturday and on Sunday evening. But if you can't make it, we'll be streaming both on our YouTube channel. Tomorrow, I'll be hosting a discussion with Mick Lynch, Zara Sultana and John McTurnan. It's going to be fireworks. That's about the relationship between Labour and the trade union. Should the Labour party support strikes. And on Sunday, my colleague Moya will be hosting a panel on the state of political journalism in Britain. That's with Adam Bienkov, Ava Evans and Maurice McLeod. That's both nights this weekend on Navarra Media YouTube channel. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.